Welcome to another episode of Let Fear Bounce. This is Kim Langling, your host. And hey, folks, we are going to take a step back in time today, right back into the medieval times with historian Danielle Sabolski. Now, it's an incredibly fascinating conversation. I've learned so much from her, so I hope that you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. So grab your cup of coffee, sit back, and let's get on with the show. Oh, and hey, by the way, if you want to learn a little bit more about what it is I do, feel free to hop on over to my website at kimlanglingauthor.com, find out more about the podcast, additional episodes, and what else is happening in my realm. All right, let's get on with the show. Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let Fear Bounce. This is Kim Langling, your host, and I am so glad that you are here spending just a small part of your day with myself and my special guest today, Danielle Cybalski. As a writer, TEDx speaker, and a former college professor, she's also a podcaster, and she has made medieval history fun, entertaining, and accessible for millions of people around the world. Danielle's mission is to share the joy of history by highlighting our common humanity across time and space. When she's not reading, writing, or recording, Danielle can be found drinking tea, doing Krav Maga, or sometimes building a backyard trabucket. And I have no idea if I pronounced that correctly, but it sounds very interesting. Or is it trebuchet? It's trebuchet. Oh. <laughs> I like Trabucket better. <laughs> Me too. It's got a bucket. So there you go. <laughs> well, welcome, Danielle, to Let Fear Bounce. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, okay, medieval history, and you're not an older person. <laughs> you know, I know folks can't see her. She's a, she a beautiful young lady. <laughs> Where did the medieval history, where did that interest come from? Where, what sparked all of that? Well, young is relative. Thank you very much. <laughs> I've been doing this for about 15 years. So I think that puts it in perspective, but um, I, it started with Disney. I think people really want a profound answer, but I loved Sleeping Beauty. I really loved it. And Robin Hood, Disney Robin Hood as well. And then my parents were super into Tolkien. My dad read us The Hobbit, that kind of stuff. And then my mom really liked Tennyson and Tennyson wrote like The Lady of Shalott and The Idols of the King. And so I was kind of immersed in it as a kid, but my parents were not historians. I just came to it kind of accidentally. I came at it through literature, especially through Arthurian literature. And then I really wanted to know more about how people lived. So I kind of slipped into the history side of it and doing that more often these days i love how it was sparked by disney yeah i know people people are always like you want you want it to be like thomas aquinas or something like i read the works of the saints and i became inspired no i really liked sleeping beauty and the art in it is based on the 14th century so you know it's legit <laughs> it's right. not the answer people expect no i think it's awesome because i mean disney disney movies they're enthralling yeah you know my daughter, she's in her thirties and she'll text me every once in a while and say, I'm doing a marathon Disney day today. Mm -hmm. and, you know, she still sits and watch. And I, for years sat and watched, I think we had every Disney movie that there was. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah the, the animated, the animated ones. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. And they're, I mean, they're just, you fall into them, you know, you, you fall into those stories and they take you to another place. So you're, you're, 
your writing and stuff and everything that you do with medieval, you, you use that and it's used in schools and educational institutions across the nation. How did that come about? Well, I started writing a blog. I was at home with my first baby and I was going crazy <laughs> because I missed learning about history. I missed that studying I had done in graduate school, especially. So I started writing this blog and then it got picked up by uh, probably the the world's biggest website that talks about the Middle Ages, Medievalist.net. So I started to write for them. And then that, that snowballed and I, I was writing uh, these articles that I called the five minute medievalist. And the point of them was to help other people become medievalists in five minutes. And so I would introduce a topic and some research in these short articles and people found it a good teaching tool. And I didn't know it was happening for a very long time until people reached out to me who were professors and said they were using them in the classroom. And that was so flattering because I think as somebody who I have a master's degree, but I don't have a PhD. So to be writing stuff that people who have PhDs found useful as a teaching tool was really great. It was very, uh, very validating, I think. Yeah. But it just speaks to how the stuff that that you use to introduce anybody to the subject can be really helpful for students. So I, that came about accidentally. I definitely wasn't aiming to write stuff for the classroom. And isn't that the best way for things to happen? Yeah, I mean, my entire career has been a series of accidents. You know? <laughs> now, if you think about it, though, no, no, they weren't. They all happened just how they were supposed to. But to us as mere humans, we're like, oh, that's cool. How that, you know? Yeah. It's, so your, what are they... your, plan, your plan, you know, played out exactly how it was supposed to and how wonderful that is. That's right. What is it they say that life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forward. Exactly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so share with my listeners um, what actually a medievalist is. Okay. So a medievalist is somebody who studies the time period that's roughly from 500 to 1500. And this is really a Eurocentric time period. And it's really a Eurocentric uh, period of study because other areas of the world were going through different phases at different times. So I'm a person who studies Europe between about 500 and 1500. And if those dates are kind of random to you, we're talking about the fall of Rome, basically, to about the time of Henry VIII. So I'm done before Shakespeare comes on the scene. And I'm done after the Romans have left much of Europe and moved to Byzantium or Constantinople. So what are a couple of things that people would be and i'm sure that there's a lot because the, the time period back then life was just so different for humans i mean just so completely different share a couple of things that people nowadays would be like oh my goodness how did they live like that <laughs> well i mean i think the biggest one so people ask me sometimes like would you want to tr time travel and absolutely not <laughs> i would not want to do that because i think that the biggest difference is in medicine and so people didn't have antibiotics and that is responsible for a huge amount of devastation for example the black death which killed millions of people killed up to 50 or 60 percent of the population in some areas so you know in some places two-thirds of people died it could have been solved with antibiotics because that that, that plague bacteria is still around you can still encounter it in places like arizona 
<laughs> for people who are listening to, to us in Arizona, <laughs> you can contract the Black Death, but it can be cured by antibiotics. So, I mean, I think that is one of the biggest changes is, is the fact that our medicine is so much better. But I think overall, as humans, we are more similar than we are different even back then. So things were more challenging. You had to spend more time thinking about what you were going to eat. Right. I was just, um, I was just going to say, there's two things that pop in my head is their daily thing was just maintaining, mm -hmm. getting food, making sure you had food. And my other thing that it's always pops in my head when I think of that time frame is personal hygiene because I don't think it was existing. <laughs> now that is a myth. That is a myth. And that it is, is a one myth? of the okay, bust yeah. it. Bust that myth. That is one of the things that I bust on the regular. So I'm glad you brought it up. People <laughs> still bathed. <laughs> and we know that they use tweezers to like groom their eyebrows and stuff. We know that they use combs to get any nits out that they might have. They um used toothpaste. <laughs> it was something that they had to rub on their teeth instead, something abrasive, but they were using that. They used cloves to make their breath smell nice. So like they were cleaning themselves because nobody wants to feel dirty. We just kind of as humans feel gross when we are dirty. So there was a lot of bathing that was happening. It was not as often as it happens today. And that is for really practical reasons. Mm -hmm. One of them being that the resources it takes to have a bath <laughs> are a lot, right? You have to gather the water, you have to put it in one spot, you have to gather some wood, you have to light it, heat the water, then you have to get rid of all that stuff later. So it's just not practical to have a bath every day, unless you're rich and you have other people who are helping right. with that. Mind you, the Roman baths that they built all over Europe were still in existence. So you could actually go to a bathhouse and have a bath every day if you wanted to for a fee kind of like you would if you were going to a spa today you just pay a fee and then you could go and have a bath so people were bathing on the regular and they were more hygienic than we think today but they were not as hygienic as we are because they didn't have the resources right right so and on an in general on a uh typical day for a normal a normal family not one that that you know was rich or a landowner or however it was done back then what would a typical day look like for just a normal medieval family so if we're talking about a peasant family like an agricultural family it would look much like it does on a farm today where your entire day is taken up with the land and the animals so people didn't have the machines that they have today so you'd have to hand plow it or use an ox or use or a team of horses, but then you have to go in there and you have to weed and make sure that the land is good. So you mostly have men who are doing that work, that field work. They might be digging trenches. They might be weeding, that kind of stuff. Women are doing everything else. Right. <laughs> Women are, right. They might have children that were also taking care of animals. So feeding them, grooming them, all of that stuff, shoveling, <laughs> shoveling what they leave behind. Um, but they also had to spend a lot of time cooking and doing that kind of stuff. So it would look like the kind of thing that's happening on a farm today. Maybe not, you know, a North American farm where a lot of that's mechanized, but there's lots of places in the world right now where people are living in that same way, just mm -hmm. agriculturally. And a lot of the day is spent taking care of animals, the land and the food. So share a little bit about the the books that you've got out. Well, I've got several books out. So if you have a minute, I'll tell you about them. We got, we got a hot minute. Yeah. 
<laughs> the the first book was called the five minute medievalist and i compiled some of my most popular articles and added a couple on top of that and that was self-published it was kind of an experiment to see were people going to read my stuff and they did fortunately and then uh, i created a very short book it's more of a pamphlet it's called the five minute medievalist guide to surviving the zombie apocalypse and that was a way of bringing people into the medieval world by imagining what life would be like in a post-electric world. So say you have to defend yourself against zombies, you might be using the same defensive strategies you'd be using if you were living in a castle in the Middle Ages. So it was a way of bringing people to history in a way that was more fun, I hope. (laughs) Then I wrote a book called Life in Medieval Europe, which answers the type of questions that people have when they're watching TV, like they're watching Game of Thrones, or they're watching, you know, Lord of the Rings or something like that. And they have questions like, what was life like every day? So that book is structured so you can read it beginning to end. And it makes sense that way. Or you can go down the table of contents, which is literally questions. <laughs> like, Did people date? And then you can find that and read that. So that book is meant to be on the shelf to pull out whenever you're watching something. You're like, oh, did they eat turkey? The answer is no, because turkeys are American, <laughs> like North American, <laughs> South American. So that was Life in Medieval Europe, Fact and Fiction. And then the most recent book that's been published was how to live like a monk medieval wisdom for modern life and that was a cool book because i got to learn more about monks when i was working on it but i brought together what we know from modern psychology about wellness so like scientific experiments that show what makes us feel better and many of these things are consistent with what medieval monks were doing so even though actual monks had a much more difficult life because they were giving themselves a difficult life on purpose to serve God, even though that was hard, many of the things that they were doing, we can take on in a a slightly easier way to give us a better life, a more peaceful life, a happier life. And then I have a new book coming out in September, it looks like called Chivalry and Courtesy, Medieval Manners for a Modern World. And this addresses etiquette. So a lot of people think that medieval people had no manners at all, right? They just ate with their hands, stuffed their faces type thing. And this deals with etiquette. What is chivalry actually like in the 12th century when it started to become a thing? And then what can we learn from that today? So that is like the shortest I can make it, but that is my my history of books. <laughs> no, they sound fascinating. And your, your you. newest one that's going to be coming out towards the end of the year, that that sounds incredibly interesting. Well, they all sound interesting. Thank you. Have you ever considered writing a fiction book? No. <laughs> no. I, I like no. that. No. <laughs> no. It's too hard. It's too hard because you have to like come up with all of these characters and how they interact. And no, it's way too hard. I like to deal with the things that already exist and dig into them and really deal with real people. That's my jam. I, I too write nonfiction and people are always asking me, you know, are you going to write a fiction book? I'm like, you know, I have one in my head and it's been there for years, but when I sit down to actually do it and have my characters talk to each other, that's actually very difficult. It's really hard. Yeah. You know, and I'm an avid reader. I, I read at least two books a week mm-hmm. and have since I was very young. And you would think that I would be able to do that easier just simply because I've read so much, but I can't. So, well, <laughs> you know, I probably can. Uh, I just have not put the effort into it, 
but yeah, it would be, I, I think in my brain, it would be hard too. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. Really hard. <laughs> That's too much work. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of work. That's for sure. <laughs> so what do you see yourself doing? I don't know, two, three years from now. Well, um, I want to continue doing what I'm doing basically and just expand it a little bit more. So I, I do a weekly podcast called the Medieval Podcast and I've just created a new one at the time we are recording called Extra Medieval where I get to talk further about the things that I talk about on the Medieval Podcast. And so that is reaching more people and that is really kind of my mission is to to reach the people who are interested in this and intimidated by those big tomes that you see on the shelf right so if you're interested in like do people eat turkey legs you want to know but you don't want to like pick up that huge book on i don't know the 12th century or something that is the work that i'm doing and that's the work that i hope to continue to do now do you attend medieval fairs sometimes sometimes but like <laughs> it's not it's the type of thing where you go to just let go, right? You don't go there to hope for things to be strictly accurate. That's right. just not why people go there. People go there to dress up as fairies and 18th century pirates. You know, it's not it's not the type of place where you go expecting to see how things were. There are places where you can go to see that stuff, but that typical like North American Renaissance fair, medieval fair, that is just a place to go and play. So sometimes I go to those things, but I don't tell anyone who I am when I go there. <laughs> <laughs> I have, I have went, I went several times. I, I just found it great fun. I didn't dress up, but I used to take my daughter when she was younger and it was just always great fun. And she was always like, I want to be a fairy. <laughs> you know? mm, yeah. <laughs> she liked all the wings and the sparkle and, and they do get in, you know, their, their characters that the mm -hmm. people that are working there and have the booze there that it, it is it's just a lot of fun to go to yeah yeah, yeah. it's just for play and yes. i think there is definitely a spot for that i think that it's good to have a place to play and that uh well one of my friends is another writer a much better known writer than i am dan jones and he said to me once when i was interviewing him it's not our job to be the fun police and i think he's right i think that we can give people the facts when they want them but we don't have to force it, force it right. down their throats when they're not interested in that. Like if they're just going to play, let people play. Well, you know, and I also think I look at it, those, those uh, types of events that might spark interest, mm -hmm. you yeah. know, to look deeper into the history of that time period. And, oh yeah, that was really fun. And, oh, I want to get a costume and wear it next year when they come back around. But that also might be sparking interest in a young person. That's you right. Know? There so, was a... Yeah, there was a time in our field where you were kind of looked down upon for enjoying things like that, where you couldn't be a serious scholar if you liked those things. But that has really changed because just about everybody who is in our field as a professional historian started it because of Disney or Tolkien or something like that. Everybody gets into it through entertainment, I think, not from reading Thomas Aquinas. And then you get to be a more serious scholar of it if you like but yeah it's it you get interested in history usually through entertainment i i enjoyed history in all through school that i just enjoyed history and literature those were my two favorite subjects mm -hmm. and i would just fall into certain things so if someone you know someone says you're you you introduce yourself as a historian yeah do people 
I don't, you know, don't take this negative, but do people think, oh, she's going to be boring? Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. They think I'm going to be boring or they think I'm living it all the time. So that first question I always get asked is, do you dress up? And the answer to that is no, <laughs> I have. But when I'm off the clock, I'm off the clock. Like this is work. And I think that you need to take time away from things, even if you love them, so that you can come back to them fresh. So yeah, people, I write these books, I try and make them as fun and entertaining as possible. But even people that I love that I know will come to me and say, yeah, it was really interesting. <laughs> like they're surprised. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, people assume I'm going to be boring. Uh, but I don't write about things that I find boring. <laughs> well, and you don't look like the stereotypical historian. Oh, I don't wear tweed. Right. <laughs> you don't have a cap and a pipe sticking out that's, of your mouth. That's right. <laughs> One of those that's dapper right. caps. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. And I think that gives certain people pause because people can't see, but my hair is currently blue. And I think that some people think that makes me less serious or less capable or something like that oh, so i yeah. deal with that as well but it really doesn't matter you just have to put your work out put your best out and then the people who are meant to love it will love it well i i truly appreciate that the way you're putting it out there i can only imagine that it's it's getting the attention of maybe you know younger people or people in general that it normally wouldn't because you're trying to put a fun little spin on it, but yet you're sticking, you know, you're keeping historically accurate. I, yeah. I'm appreciative of how you're putting that stuff out there. And I'm glad to hear that you're just going to continue to do it. So <laughs> yeah, well, it's like Tony Morrison, I think who said that if the book that you want to read doesn't exist, then you must write it. And that is what I do. I wanted to read stuff that was fun. And so I make it. But the podcast, I do think, is it's reaching people. The people that email me are people like long haul truckers who you don't necessarily imagine are going to be like tuning into a medieval history podcast. But the, the purpose of the podcast for me is to bring forth experts who are more expert than me on a particular subject. But that's really interesting. So we've done I've done um, episodes on like sex, which is always interesting, on donkeys, on pigs and swans and even laundry like that stuff right. is interesting to me and i think it's interesting to other people and so i i try and like push these experts into the limelight because their work is so important and it is interesting your books and such i know you said you wouldn't be going fiction but have you ever considered i don't know like a documentary or something like that yeah so tv is a fickle business <laughs> i've been approached to be on a on tv more than once, but I would say that the shows don't come out most of the time. So a lot of people will have a lot of ideas, but they don't get made. So I have been approached for TV. I would be comfortable doing that. I did a live show where I was doing commentary on this reenactment type fighting for Age of Empires. So I was doing this for Amazon's Twitch channel called Crown. And, you know, that was super fun. I was comfortable doing that. It was, it was a good time. And I was flown to LA to do that. I live in Canada. So like leaving Canada for California and 
in November was quite nice. Yeah. And it just <laughs> just goes to show like learn history and you never know where it's gonna take That's you. That's right. That's right. I was thinking PBS. Yeah. You know, a yeah. documentary type thing, you know, obviously with today's people. Um, but I don't know. I don't know what that would look like. It just popped in my head. So usually when that happens, I just blurt it out. So. <laughs> well, I would love to do that. And for people who are interested in that kind of thing, there's a really good sort of Netflix for history called History Hit. And I know a lot of people who are doing the documentaries there, but the problem is I live in Toronto and that's in the UK. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I would love to do that, but I think I'm in the wrong spot. So we'll see. <laughs> you might have to take a trip to the UK. That's right. I'm going there in June to speak at the Chalk Valley History Festival, which is a very big festival where you do see very accurate reenactment if that is your jam and you're listening in the UK. I, I think the folks over in Europe, their their reenactments and their festivals and things like that are much more true to life. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. um, I was I, we had speak spoken off mic. I had been to Europe numerous times in the past and a couple of times we were there in November and December. So in Germany, they had the Weihnachtsmarkt, So it's the Christmas market. But you would walk through these little villages and everyone's dressed in period dress. Mm -hmm. and drinking out of tankards and you know <laughs> things like that and it was it was incredibly fascinating to me I was just enthralled by all of it and mm -hmm. uh in France where there was one the whole village literally the entire village was in period costume and they were cooking the food how it would have been cooked back then and you know approaching you with these wooden platters of blood sausage <laughs> yeah. I was like no thank you <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a taste I have not acquired. <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't even try it. I couldn't even try it. My my husband at the time tried it and 20 minutes later he just looked at me and said, "I do not feel so good." And I'm like, "I don't doubt it." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that's okay. I'm going to skip that one, but I will go for the historical beer. Sign me up. Exact yes, exactly. <laughs> now it's an acquired taste, I think. It's an acquired taste, but once you acquire it, it's like, you don't want to drink any other kind if you, if you do like beer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> so what types of foods, and I'm just going to jump around because that's how my brain works. The types of foods that, that folks back then would typically make, cause I don't know what type of animals or did they, you know, of course they had to probably slaughter them all. They hunted for their food, um, hunting and gathering and all of that, but mm -hmm. what was like a typical meal? Well, for the peasant family that we're talking about, it would be pottage. So that would be a grain that you just kind of leave on the stove all day and you throw in whatever you have. So there is a lot of things like garlic, leek and onions, um, animals like chicken, pork, beef, all of that stuff. And then there were a lot of spices. So people have this weird idea that you would use spices to cover up the taste of rotten meat, which is a very strange thing because first of all, rotten meat would make you sick. Like right. <laughs> and also, why would you use something that you had to pay extra for, like spices to cover this up just to get sick in the end? A lot of people did have spices. This is something that was not just elite. So if you are eating something from the Middle Ages, you might have something that for us in North America might taste more like Christmas or Thanksgiving, like lots of clove, ginger, nutmeg, that kind of thing. So that would taste pretty good. But what people didn't have was everything that you eat at medieval times. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> no sweet corn, yeah. no potatoes, no tomatoes. These are all from the Americas. So you would have things like, you know, celery and carrots and that kind of stuff, but you wouldn't have tomatoes, which is is funny because it is a, a staple at many right. medieval style things here. So healing. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know if they did they have doctors or were they considered healers? Yeah, they had. Well, OK, so we're talking about a thousand years of history and we're talking about an entire continent. So things right. change over time. But they did have doctors and they were university educated doctors, but they were following a Greek school and Roman school of thinking, which was the idea of having your humors in balance. So they thought there were four humors and that they had to be in balance and that you might do something like bloodletting to get rid of some bad ones so that you're making things even. Now, on the ground, you would also have people who just knew some stuff about healing, and you'd also have midwives. And so the university-educated people would be taking care of things like your, your diet and your exercise and making sure that your regimen was good to keep everything balanced. The people who did the surgery were barbers. They had the sharpest instruments. Right. So they would do surgery. And then you'd have people who would be administering things like, well, you'd have apothecaries who were like pharmacists. Those were the people who could mix the drugs best and give them to you. Medieval first aid involved things like using alcohol to sterilize, using honey as an antibiotic, which worked pretty well, packing wounds with moss, that kind of stuff, and using bandages. So they, they knew a lot more than we do about plants because right. we've forgotten a lot of it and so they use that kind of medicine uh so yeah people were people were medically trained and then you did have people who just kind of knew what we might think of more as first aid and i i'm glad that you mentioned you know they you, they knew a lot more about plants and yeah they did uh <laughs> yeah and i think that you know I'm, I'm starting to see a little bit more in modern times today more things like that coming out and people talking about it. And I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on it. Why, you know, it started back then it worked maybe not as well as, you know, medicine, mm -hmm. modern medicine would work, but there are so many things plant-based that could be so healthy for us in today's world that it's poo-pooed because it's like, no, here, take this pill. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's, super complex <laughs> it's mixed up in a whole bunch of things so the middle ages has had a bad reputation since it ended <laughs> so part of this is that people always want to think of themselves as better people always want to think of progress as being linear and straight up and that's just not how it works and then so you know it, it makes sense to look back on the past and say these people were dumb because we are smarter which is not really true but then the other thing is something that happened right after the middle ages with the protestant reformation and so a lot of the information that people were spreading was like protestant is great which protestantism is great which means that catholicism by default is bad and because everyone in the middle ages was catholic it was another reason to say the people were dumb they were superstitious at this time so some of it is protestant propaganda from the 1600s so that is part of it saying that this time was backwards and then the more people kind of bought into this idea that people were dumb back in the day the less they trusted that stuff right the more they thought we are smart now so our stuff is by default better so i think 
it is all kind of wrapped up in this idea of progress being linear and upwards, <laughs> you know, and this idea that we keep getting smarter when we are smart in some ways, not other ways, but our brains have not really changed. It's just what information are we able to access? The reason I think people knew more about plants then than we do now is because they lived on the land and they saw it every day. You had to understand how these plants were growing, what their life cycle was, what they needed. And we are further from that. So when somebody says this is going to work and we haven't seen, you know, we haven't seen a plant that might work right. in our own lives, then we're going to go with that. Right. So I think it's super complex and I'm only kind of like skipping along the surface of why, but I think our distance from actually seeing things grow, seeing their effect on animals and other people is part of the reason that we have lost that learning and i think it's important to to bring it back as much as we can oh i agree and you know to look back you had said a couple times you know people you know look back and say oh they were dumb and that you know yeah. just the way world politics religion however it was you know working at that time and that that's a dynamic that just is you know always changing yeah always yeah. and will probably always be that way to me, the way I look at it is they blazed a trail. There's nothing dumb about them because yeah. we wouldn't have any of what we have unless it began somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And I that's absolutely true. There's a really great book called The Light Ages by Seb Falk, and he talks about medieval science. So people think that there was no science in the Middle Ages or that the church was against it. And what they're thinking of is Galileo in a time way past the Middle Ages, like way past it. But during the Middle Ages, the church was super into science because they wanted to understand God. And to understand his mind, they needed to understand how the world works. So they were super into science. They were the ones that, you know, sponsored invention that sent monks to university, like they were super into it. And it's because of them, as you say, that we can build from here. So right. yeah, we owe them a lot. So the church back then was very powerful. Yes, extremely powerful. Yeah. Now, you know a lot more about the history of that, you know, that time frame. Powerful in a good way or powerful in a bad way? It's down to human behavior. <laughs> it's uh, down to human behavior. Yeah. yeah, because I think that some people who got into the church wanted power, but I think most of the people, I think most human beings are good. And I think most of the people who got into the church got into it because they wanted to save souls. And that was their mission. So, you know, you always have people who are going to put themselves first at the expense of everyone else. But is that the general tenor of the medieval church? No, I don't think so. Even if they did things that we don't approve of, and they did many things that I don't approve of, their goal was as they believed to save people so you know we may not approve and i don't always approve but we can understand by understanding that they thought they were working in people's best interest much of the time i think you know and the reason i ask that is because any you know movies or maybe things that i've read that are fictional you know and in general what people might see it was portrayed as power they're in control you'll be punished because of this act of rebellion, which may have been very, very little. It's portrayed yeah. in modern times as not nice. Yeah, yeah. And people believe that 
because of entertainment. So, I mean, the work that I do is, is to help <laughs> balance that out. But for the people who are wondering, like, what was it like? There were lots of people who believed in fairies in the woods and in Jesus. And if they said something that was heretical, the parish priest would sit down with them and be like, listen, this is heretical. Here's why. Here's like the what we know about Jesus, blah, blah, blah. He would explain it and say, okay, say a few Hail Marys and we'll forget all about it. And most people did. Like most people were not ever punished for having heretical beliefs because first of all, they may not know they're heretical unless it's explained to them. And secondly, you know, the priests were like, well, if they can't read the books, then how can they understand them? People were people were much more lenient than we imagined them to be. And the things that we remember were the things that people wrote down because they were the most extreme, the most horrific. And those are the things that stick out in our minds, just human nature. Now, education level for the general population, could they read? Could they write? It depends. It depends. I think if you were a peasant on a farm, you probably couldn't read. But if you were above that, maybe artisan class or, you know, trades people, and then nobility above that, if you could afford to hire a tutor, or you could afford to send your kid to school, they would learn how to read. But what's important to remember about the medieval world is they thought of reading and writing as different skills. So you might be able to read in Latin and in your own language, but you might not necessarily be able to write because you could get a scribe to do that. That's a separate skill. So it wasn't necessarily that reading and writing went together for people who became members of the church. Those were the people who educated for the most part. They would both read and write, but not everybody could write who could read. That's interesting that they were seen as skills. Mm -hmm. I mean, here, you know, in, in modern times, obviously, it's a given. You have to be able to, to read and write to, to get through, mm -hmm. you know, to do anything, really. Um, in fact, you know, it's interesting that it was looked at as a skill set. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I mean, most of us can afford to send our kids to school. We don't need them to work on the farm or right. anything like that. So we can send them to school. And the more that people gained more wealth and the more that public schools were open and they were able to do that, the more people went to school. Fascinating stuff. Fascinating. Thanks. I could sit here and talk for like another hour and a half or two hours. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Me but too. We've, we've, like, we've like flown through a half hour. This is fascinating <laughs> stuff. And I, it's such a pleasure to meet you and know that you're, you're out there making it interesting and making it fun for all different age groups, you know, to look at history. Cause I, I sincerely believe we, we need to know what happened in the past. Mm -hmm. you know, to learn and grow and make our future better and brighter. That's the way I look at it. You, you, you have to learn. And to me, it's just fascinating because I'm an avid reader and I wish everyone were avid readers and then they could all go out and buy your books and learn something. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's great. That is awesome. Buy my books, but you could also listen to the podcast. <laughs> that's right. Listen to the podcast. So, okay. As we get ready to wrap up here, share the name of your podcast again so folks can go check them out right so the medieval podcast is the one that has the most momentum it has the most episodes people can listen to that one and then extra medieval is one for subscribers where i get more deep into the subjects i talk about on the medieval podcast awesome stuff so i ask all my guests when we're getting ready to wrap up if you would like to share a nugget of hope for our listeners out there yes 
and I've been trying to think of what what I should bring to this. And for me, what is hopeful about studying history is that we can see human beings as human beings. And what I mean by that is we haven't changed that much. And so that means we can connect to those people. And I think if we can connect to people from the past, it makes it easier for us to connect to people across the world, different cultures, different places. And so for me, knowing that people haven't changed that much means that we have access to all of this knowledge and understanding and experience, and we can really enjoy and learn from people who have been here before us. So for me, that's hopeful because the more we learn, the better we do, I think, as, as human beings. I agree. And I like the word that you used was connect mm -hmm. because we need more of that connect yeah. on an even level and be open yeah. to learning and listening. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Complete. Oh, awesome. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for being my guest today. This has been a true pleasure and, and great fun. It's just been absolute blast listening to learning, learning from you actually about <laughs> medieval times and Good luck with your podcast and your newest one and your newest book that's coming out and everything that you're going to be doing in the future, because I am, I'm excited to see where your, where your journey is going to take you. Thank you so much. It's been so great talking to you. Well, thank you. Thanks again for being on my show and everybody out there listening. This is Kim Langling, your host of Let Fear Bounce. Thanks so much for joining me and my guest today, Danielle. Everybody out there, be well, stay well, and be blessed.